Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Concerns over reported ceasefire violations in South Sudan and speakers of parliament from around the world meet in New York. In economics, Nigeria's Aliko Dangote to invest in cement and coal mining in Zimbabwe. And in sports news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana to play Senegal in the Nelson Mandela Challenge. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Six soldiers have been killed in a rocket attack in the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu province. The attack took place in Rugari, the capital of North Kivu. Richuru is one of the main areas of operation for Hutu rebels from the FDLR. Congo's army launched operations against the FDLR in February, provoking retaliatory attacks against Congolese soldiers and civilians. The SEDEC Commission of Inquiry established to mainly probe the killing of Lesotho's former army commander. Maparangwe Mohau has dismissed the Defence Forces' submission to exclude mutiny investigations from its terms of reference. The Defence Force also wants to make all presentations of evidence public amid heavy security and media attention. The Commission started its public hearings in the capital, Maseru. Ntakwana Katane reports. The Lesotho Army wanted to appear as an organization, not individuals. The Commission says no. The Army wanted mutiny off the table of the Commission. It's no to this too. It also wanted access to all witnesses and no in-camera proceedings. The Commission says no to this. It will provide implicated persons and organizations the opportunity to respond, but it will not disclose the sources that gave evidence in camera. Talks to decide Libya's future are to return to the United Nations in Geneva later this week. The development follows recent discussions between Libyan representatives in Morocco, where the UN negotiator Bernardino Lyon repeated concerns that, as he put it, time was fast running out for Libya. It remains unclear whether one of the key parties to the talks, the General National Congress, will be present at the next round of negotiations in the Swiss city. Daniel Johnson reports. The two-day meeting planned in Geneva beginning Wednesday has been billed as a chance to conclude talks that have been underway for seven months. That's according to the UN-Libya mission UNSMIL, which has just finished hosting negotiations between the country's representatives in Morocco. Under the terms of previously agreed deadlines, the UN mission says that the Geneva meeting is being held so that Libya's rival factions can put their names to a new political agreement. This blueprint will be key to how the country is run in future. Up to now, the North African country has been split and devastated by conflict since the overthrow of President Muammar Gaddafi in 2011.
Kenyan teachers have called a nationwide strike following a dispute with the government over a pay hike awarded by the courts. The government is refusing to implement the order. The teachers' union says its members will not report for work on Tuesday, the first day of school this term. Serakimane reports. In January this year, the more than 288,000 teachers went on strike. When the dispute moved to the industrial court, the court ruled in their favor, granting them 50 to 60 percent pay increment. The Kenyan government, however, says it does not have the money needed to pay the teachers, amounting to about 170 million rands. Several schools are deserted as parents heeded the union's call to keep their children at home as the dispute continues. The Kenyan government has termed the strike illegal. And finally, the driver of one of the trucks involved in a crash in Swaziland that caused multiple deaths will appear in the Manzini Magistrates Court. He's charged with culpable homicide. The crash happened when the truck was transporting maidens to the annual reed dance. The government says 11 maidens and two traditional leaders were killed, but opposition groups have put the death toll at between 38 and 65. Well, that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Tuesday, the 1st of September, Spring Day, the 244th day of 2015 with 121 days left in the year. A permanent ceasefire pronounced by the South Sudan government and the rebels is being violated despite a peace deal signed by the two parties. Fighting continues to be reported in the country's Nile region, a rebel-controlled area. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. The South Sudan government and rebel faction led by former vice president of the country, Riek Mashar, signed a peace deal in August this year to end the civil war in South Sudan that has raged on since December 2013. As part of the agreement, a ceasefire was supposed to be declared by the two parties 72 hours after the signing. Indeed, on 29th of August midnight, it was declared by both parties and they both announced their intention to put down their arms. However, a few hours later, fighting was reported in the Nile region of South Sudan, an area controlled by the rebels. Rebel leader Riek Mashar, who is currently in Addis Ababa, says that the South Sudan army has laid a convoy through the regions where the rebel military controls, an issue that may breed provocation. But using a convoy that goes through territory which we control uh, gives us uh, different reading towards the political commitment on the peace agreement. But we understand that it can be outburst here and there over breaking the ceasefire, and this can be controlled. Analysts say that the violation of the ceasefire is not a surprise since the parties seemed to have signed the peace deal because of pressure from the international community. Haleluja Luli is a researcher of conflict prevention and risk analysis at the Institute of Security Studies in Ethiopia. He has been following closely the issue of South Sudan conflict. Hallelujah says that the ceasefire violation is not a surprise. He adds on that the warring parties may have signed the peace deal just because of pressure from the international community that wanted the parties to sign the deal by 17th of August 2015 or else they would face sanctions. I think the absence of 
a proper monitoring group, an effective monitoring group, and the inaccessibility of uh, these areas, the conflict areas, coupled with the proliferation of the different command groups under the two major warring parties, makes it very difficult to point a finger at one specific group or individual. But, of course, I think both parties take the responsibility in a way. The IGAD Plus mediation is just planning to hold a retreat to start the process of forming a joint monitoring and evaluation commission to oversee the signed agreement. This mechanism, analysts say, should have been in place by the time the peace deal was being signed. Researcher Haleluja says that the mediation is offering wrong solutions to the South Sudan crisis. At this specific time, the IGAD Plus and any other groups or organizations involved in the peace talks and peacemaking process in South Sudan should try to address the, what are the structural challenges that are preventing from the proper implementation of the different agreements signed between the different warring parties. Because it uh, looks like it is madness. Because uh, doing uh, the same thing again and again and you know, expecting different results is what's happening right now. When the warring parties signed the peace deal, they were supposed to have accompanied it with details about their military, including their numbers and operation locations, in order for a ceasefire to be effective. However, until now, they have refused to reveal these details. Koleto Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio, in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Two people were gunned down in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, while two others sustained injuries. Meanwhile, the police have launched a massive search operation in several parts of the capital in search for weapons. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. Two people were shot dead and three others injured in a gunfire that occurred later in the evening of this Sunday in the southern neighborhood of Mosaga in the capital, Bujumbura. According to witnesses on the scene, the attack occurred in a nightclub in that area of the capital Bujumbura when armed men in military uniforms intruded and shot at the two people. A young university student and a vendor of small goods died on the spot. At least three other people were injured. As the police haven't yet given any details about the attack, the silence remains still unknown, but residents of Musaga allege the attack might have been carried out by the ruling party Youth Wing known as Imbonerakure. The incident prompted a police operation since early this Monday to search for weapons, during which a police agent was injured in a grenade explosion. Meanwhile, in the neighboring commune of Kanyosha overlooking the capital Bujumbura, an Imbonerakure militant was shot dead early in the morning of this Monday by unknown gunmen a week after the assassination of a prominent opposition militant in the neighboring commune of Isare. Following this insecurity, the police launched a massive search operation in several parts of the capital, especially in the opposition strongholds, in search for arms in the wrong hands. Since Sunday evening till noon of this Monday, the district of Jabe in the center of the capital Bujumbura is cordoned by heavily armed police agents. Since the beginning of the operation, nobody was allowed to enter in or leave. According to police spokesperson, the operation was launched in the area to search for weapons following the capture of three shot machine guns and many bullets and military materials on this Sunday. This is the second major search carried out in the district of Jabe in less than a month. Earlier this August, the police had launched a similar two-day operation, seizing no weapons but arresting around 20 people. A similar search operation also took place on Monday in the northern neighborhoods of Tibitoke and Kinama, also in the capital Bujumbura. Until midday, police has not yet been able to give the results of these operations going on in several areas of the capital since Sunday night. 
For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira, reporting from Bujumbura. Lawmakers have been urged to embrace their critical function in, in ensuring that the future Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, become a reality for the planet. Over 150 countries are represented at the Interparliamentary Union's Fourth World Conference of Speakers at the United Nations in New York, where the role of legislators in crafting national frameworks for the SDGs is being brought into sharp focus. The SDGs will be formally adopted next month when heads of state gather at a UN summit to rubber stamp the 17 new goals. Show and Brass Peace reports. Parliaments have to deliver by ensuring that the SDGs become a living national document, a sentiment echoed by several speakers, among them Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Your contribution to its implementation will be equally critical in ensuring that the agenda is translated from the global to the national. People will look to you to hold your government accountable for achieving the goals and to write the laws and invest in the programs that will make them a reality. With a clear message that parliaments must be fit for purpose, if the SDGs of eradicating poverty, achieving gender equality and universal education, among others, are to be achieved by 2030. Actor and humanist Forrest Whitaker is also a special envoy for the UN's educational, scientific and cultural organization. He gave the keynote address. No one should be left behind. You, assembled here today, come from over 150 nations. You represent the beautiful mix of nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, and peoples. I understand that the uh, political states of your nations, the ways you govern, and the exact policies that you pursue are unique to each one of you. But just as every plant requires water, sunshine, and soil to grow, every person requires basic human rights that must be universally provided across all nations. He urged parliamentarians to consider the power they have. You're legislating on this large scale, this national level. Every law you pass reflects and touches tens of thousands, maybe millions of people. Think about the power that gives you to care for and nurture the seeds of identity that exists within the youth in our world. Your laws cause ripples and waves that can nourish an entire generation. You have the ability to plow and to fertilize and to clip and to prune. You can make those seeds blossom in every field on the planet. The Interparliamentary Union's President, Sabre Chowdhury, told the speakers gathered that how effectively parliaments and parliamentarians deliver will depend on their commitment to lead and inspire. The goals do not tell us what we need to do to reach our destination. This is one area where parliamentarians have a critical role. There is no one size that fits all and parliaments will have to debate and come up with their own policy solutions. Strong ownership and buy-in to the SDGs will be critical. Let us not underestimate our mandate and ability to effect qualitative change on every aspect of people's lives. National Assembly Speaker Balek Ambeta and NCOP Chair Tandi Modise are leading a multi-party delegation to this year's conference. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun, rise it.
Le soleil est levé. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, du melang sanbonani. Africa, mulishani, pulibwanji. Africa, eh, yomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A strong girl is a woman or girl who knows her full potential and creates positive change in her community. This Women's Month, SABC and One Africa are searching for one strong girl to join us in New York during the UN General Assembly in September. If you know a strong girl, nominate her, SMS strong girl and her name and contact number to 33762. Entries close September 4th. T's and C's apply. SMSs cost 1 Rand 50. Free SMSs do not apply. Brought to you by SABC and the One Campaign. South Africa's parliament is abuzz with activity this week. Today, the National Assembly will debate the DA's motion calling for the establishment of an ad hoc committee to inquire into whether President Jacob Zuma should be removed from office. Stellenbosch University will also brief the Oversight Committee on Higher Education and Training on allegations of racism at the institution. Lula Mamatia reports. The DA alleges that President Zuma violated his oath of office by ignoring a court order preventing Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir from leaving the country when he attended the AU summit. The motion will call for the establishment of an ad hoc committee to investigate whether President Zuma should be removed from office. The DA says it does not require a two-thirds majority but a 50% plus one for the committee to be created. Chief Whip Johnston Hayson says there is a prima facie case for the president to answer. We are calling for the creation of that ad hoc committee to investigate these allegations against President Zuma, to pull the documentation together, to call witnesses, to call President Zuma and those members of the executive who chose willfully and admitted openly that they chose to ignore uh, that court order and those laws and ask them to please account to parliament for their actions. The ANC has described the DA's motion as frivolous. COCA spokesperson Muloto Motapo says the ANC is ready to debate and defeat the motion. The court uh, orders as well as the judgment that have already been given, including the ensuing case that is before the court, has got nothing to do with the president. The president is not on trial. His conduct is not on trial. So this motion, therefore, makes it... uh, Uh, That fact makes this motion a frivolous motion, and we are ready with cogent and superior arguments to consign it to the dustbin of history, as uh, we have done with the rest of the motions before. Stellenbosch University will also appear before the Portfolio Committee on Higher Education and Training to explain allegations of racism at the university. Chairperson of the committee, Yvonne Posa, explains. There's no way in which you can have these allegations and nothing happens. So we also want to look at their turnaround strategy. 
and then the, the briefing will also be followed by whether they do have a transformation plan, listen to that, and look at the progress made with regard to implementation of this transformation plan. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa will be answering questions in the NCOP on Wednesday. There will also be a debate in the National Assembly on the socio-economic impact of alcohol, drugs and substance abuse in communities and the solutions to the problem. Parliament is also hosting a two-day women's roundtable discussion on the National Development Plan and the transformation of the economy to encourage the full participation of women. A gender and development advocacy organization in Zambia, the non-governmental organizing coordinating council NGOCC has expressed concern that the participation of women in the decision-making process in Zambia is still very low. The organization is also not happy that government wants to continue with the partial amendment process of the draft national constitution with the exception of enacting the Bill of Rights. Hilda Akekela reports. Opening a workshop for affiliate groups in Livingston, NGO CC Executive Director Ngwase Mwale said despite some appointments of women to senior positions, Zambia is still lagging behind on the 50-50 ratio of women participating in the decision-making process. It is undisputable that indeed Zambia lags behind in as far as uh, women's participation in decision-making is concerned. At councillor level, we only have 6% female councillors in the entire country. You know, which is like 83 female councillors out of 1,422 throughout the country, which is really a sad situation. So in terms of what we are doing as NGOCC, first and foremost, we are pushing for the enactment of the constitution before the next election because the constitution, the draft constitution in its current form does provide for some very good progressive mechanisms that would allow more women to come up and participate in the political arena. Secondly, we are actually undertaking sensitizations in different communities, in the villages, even in the districts at provincial level. We are actually very active in identifying those women that have got leadership potential you know, to come up and join political parties and also to come up and be visible to declare their interest to participate in political parties or even in the political arena. We've also lined up programs that are starting next week where we are going to engage the different stakeholders, the churches, the traditional leaders, the political parties themselves, as well as other partners, in terms of sharing with them the importance on promoting women's participation in politics. The NGOCC also says any constitution adoption process that is devoid of the Bill of Rights is not acceptable because it is like deferring people's fundamental reasons and aspirations for a good constitution. She said her organization believes that it is retrogressive to bring forth a constitution without the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights provides for rights of women to fully participate in development processes and also to end discrimination of women as a result of certain cultural norms and practices. The Bill of Rights provides for the rights of children in as far as enabling their growth and access to basic social services such as education, good health, among others. The Bill of Rights provides for the rights of the elderly 
and the aging population of Zambia to stop further discrimination on them by the larger public and to further reduce or eliminate marginalization of the elderly people in our country so that they are also able to input into the development process. The Bill of Rights provides for basic service provision which we believe as NGOCC will go a long way to addressing the issues of poverty eradication but also improving our family and community livelihoods. Last week, the Minister of Justice informed National Assembly that the government has decided to table during the next parliamentary sitting all provisions of the draft constitution prepared by the Technical Committee on drafting the Zambian constitution except the Bill of Rights as per the provision of Article 79. The announcement was condemned by a stakeholder and activist group, the Grand Coalition on the Campaign for a People-Driven Constitution. In a statement, the Grand Coalition chairperson, Father Leonard Chiti, said the Bill of Rights remains the most important aspect of the new draft constitution as it directly affects the welfare of the people. He called on all Zambians to demand that the adoption of the new constitution be subjected to a referendum as the process is the most democratic and people-driven route. Zambians have been waiting for a new constitution for nearly two decades now. Each successive government has used the matter as a campaign point, but once in office the issue drags on. During his campaigns prior to the 2011 general elections, the late President Michael Sata condemned the inertia exhibited by his predecessors and promised to deliver a people-driven constitution within 90 days of being in office. Five years down the line, the draft constitution is still being debated. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1969. Muammar Gaddafi seized power in Libya after a coup d'etat. Gaddafi was the leader of the Free Unionist Officers Movement that overthrew the monarchy rule of King Idris, who had ruled Libya since its independence in December 1951. Let's listen to this clip of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Everywhere, our land is our land. Africa is our land. My brothers, everywhere, you are, you are the master of your continent. You are free in your continent. In this historical day, you are strong now. We are marching to the glory Forward to the progress, our brother, my brother Nelson Mandela, my brother Mbeki, forgive, forgive my brother Mugabe, forgive the whites, they are poor, you are your master, they are, they want to serve you, they are not like My brothers in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, forgive the whites, now this day they became poor, very poor, you are masters, you are free. Forgive them, we are bigger than them. We are mighty. If they want to serve us, okay. If they want to go back, okay. Goodbye to tell them goodbye. Because Africa is for Africans. Fifth Africa, fifth African unity, fifth US, forward. 
That was the late Muammar Gaddafi who seized power in Libya after a coup d'etat on this day in 1969. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwa Nangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Too many people live in extreme poverty in our country. Our women and girls are hit the hardest. As the world prepares for the UN General Assembly in New York in September, SABC and One Africa call on South Africa and other nations to invest more in women and girls because when we empower a woman, we empower the nation. This Women's Month, we invite you to stand with strong girls everywhere. Join SABC and One by signing the Strong Girl Petition on www.one.org or visit www.sabc.co.za for more information. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Opposition groups in Cote d'Ivoire threaten to block presidential elections next month. Unless government opens talks on issues such as insecurity and the Electoral Commission. Six soldiers have been killed in a rocket attack in the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu province and more than 850,000 people in Somalia face food insecurity. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. South Africa's Mineral Resources Minister Advocate Nwakora Matlodi, the mining industry and sector unions such as the National Union of Mine Workers, UESA and Solidarity, have signed a framework agreement to the con- to cushion the effects of job losses in the industry. The Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union, AMCU, has not signed the deal, arguing that it needs more time to consult its members. Frank Ngumalo reports. The agreement comes after marathon talks between the Department of Minerals and Energy, the mining industry and unions in the sector that started in early August this year. The agreement revolves around a 10-point plan that aims to soften the blows of job losses in an industry that has been gripped by low commodity prices crisis. Key elements of the deal include delaying the start of the retrenchments until agreed interventions could be implemented and the selling off of marginal mines. However, the deal does not stop companies from retrenching their workers, Ramatoti explains. We have not used the word moratorium. What we have achieved here was to say if SN retrenchment processes begin, there is uh, inclusivity 
there's an active participation by all stakeholders with the view to ensuring that we emerge with a, a product that is acceptable to all participants. And therefore, we, we recognize that we may not be able to save all the jobs. And that's why other measures kick in. There are also clearing differences on the number of mine workers already facing retrenchments. Ramatlati believes that a little over 11,700 miners might lose their jobs, while the NUM says up to 19,000 workers across the industry might be retrenched according to notices that have been served on them by various mining houses. Joseph Mutsinsi is the deputy president of the NUM. From the notice and information that we have ministered here, it's about 19,000 potential uh, retrenchment that uh, is envisaged by the industry. But like the minister has said, it's potential. We have like to emphasize that because we're still going to uh, engage uh, on the ground. This is a framework uh, to try to put mechanism uh, to stop such bloodshed uh, kind of uh, job losses. AMCO President Joseph Matunja says his union has not signed a deal because the framework has nicked in issues that were not agreed upon during the five-month strike last year. These include issues such as production linked to wages. If we are signing something that says uh, we have to encourage productivity at the workplace, so down the line, if there is no productivity, what are, are you telling these employers? You are saying, I've agreed that if there is no productivity, then they can issue another section 189. So we cannot, I mean, sign such things. We need to go back to our members and explain to them that what is this intervention? Because another thing that we raised, we said, why the companies, they don't stop the section 189 and then try to promote the very same intervention. Creative Wood Consultants Mining Analyst Mukhetima Lopiana says it is regrettable that such an important stakeholder as AMCO has not signed the agreement. The absence will always be significant. They are the major player in the platinum sector, and I think they are making inroads in other sectors. So it is, it, it, it is sadly regrettable that they are not there. This is not the first time that they have not signed. It is regret they are a key player, the key stakeholder. However, it's not something that is new or that you'd say this is a, a, a crisis. Now that a framework agreement is in place, the test of the commitment to its letter and spirit by the stakeholders will be shown by how it is easy or difficult to implement the deal on the ground. To borrow a phrase that flowed freely at the signing ceremony, the test of the pudding will be in the eating. Frank Nomalo, Johannesburg. For more on this framework agreement signed yesterday to cushion the effects of job losses in the mining industry here in South Africa, AM Live's Sakina Kamwendo spoke to Labour analyst Terry Bell earlier. Now, it all sounds, you know, great. Um, you know, they've signed a deal. Uh, but I guess uh, the question is, what exactly have they signed off on? And it's good on paper, but is this a plan that they will be able to action? Well, I think I'll come up with another cliche, not the taste of pudding will be in the eating, but also the devil is in the detail. I mean, it sounds very good, you're correct in saying that. But, I mean, uh, there are, there are what, 10 joint interventions, things like, for example, if we have between 11,700 or 19,000 jobs, government will pay for retraining. What sort of retraining? Which jobs will they go to once they're retrained? How long will such retraining take? Uh, that's just one aspect. Uh, there are also a whole lot of others. I mean, for example, um, they talk about how 
we will beneficiate minerals, etc. Now, this should have been done years ago. I suppose it is better late than never, use another cliche, but um, um, it really does look like a very ad hoc thing, a matter of knee-jerk reactions to a crisis which they should have realized a long time ago was coming. The fact that AMCO has not come on board is also a worrying aspect as well. Mm. And before we uh, get stuck into that AMCO situation, I mean, all of this will have to be paid for. And, um, you know, um, uh, the, the, the statement actually did say that uh, they will be dealing with the Treasury uh, to sort out the financial matters. But uh, surely, you know, looking at what Ntlantla Nene has been saying of late regarding other, you know, uh, issues, we don't seem to have the money. At least the Treasury doesn't seem to have more money to throw around. Now, this is what worried me when we heard the thing with the gold talks about and platinum saying, well, let's uh, now create platinum some sort of reserve. What do they meant? Like instead of, you know, most governments around the world keep gold as a reserve, um, not currency, but a reserve. It's a platinum as a reserve. I couldn't understand what they meant. Did this mean then governments would buy in platinum that was surplus to maintain the price? <clears throat> it didn't make sense. And a lot of this does not. It looks very good, as you say, on paper. But actually, in terms of implementation, it's going to be, well, I don't think just extraordinarily difficult. I think it's going to be almost impossible. Enoch Godogwana, the, um, he's, I think, chair of the, the um, ANC's uh, uh, Economic uh, Transformation Committee, I mean, he's come out and said, you know, there are pillars that they're going to build this on. Broad-based BEE, well, we've had that for years. Land redistribution, which has been slack, very slack. That they're going to expand and upgrade and maintain economic and social infrastructure. Well, that should have been done as well over the last 10 years or more. And the transformation of the labor laws, now that in itself is worrying. What sort of transformation is necessary unless it is to remove some of the, what the unions would regard as very good laws? And then he talks about a greater integration in the global economy. I mean, that's been one of our problems, the dropping of tariffs beyond what even the World Trade Organization asked for. So, I, you know, I, I think it's all far too vague to get excited about. But government had to do something, or at the very least appeared to be doing something, because this is a rather grave issue, Terry. Oh, no, I agree entirely. I mean, but what, that's what, exactly what I'm saying. They have acted now with a knee-jerk reaction. We've had so much ad hocism over the years, and it looks like yet another one. Oh, my goodness, we're faced with a crisis. We should have seen it coming. It's hit us now. What are we going to do? We have an election looming next year, and uh, local government elections. We don't look as powerful as we once did. So what do you do? And I suspect that there may be an element, more than an element of that in it. And then, of course, there's AMCU, and they didn't sign the agreement um, along with the other unions. Uh, what does that mean, uh, you know, for this agreement as it stands, and, uh, you know, what's going to happen now? Well, this is a major problem. I mean, it's probably going to be portrayed widely as just another opportunistic move by AMCU to try and gain more members because AMCU is making a more militant stand. In fact, their whole argument, and Mapundra's argument, the, the president of AMCU, about productivity and not... Because one of the, the um, joint interventions talks about increasing productivity. Well, increasing productivity means producing more profit per worker. So unless you've got a detail in there about how workers will be remunerated for such increase in productivity or whether you're going to have even more job losses because this idea of no moratorium, initially when they went into the talks, 
UMCO and the National Union of Mine Workers were agreed on one issue, and that was that there should be a moratorium, that there should be no more job losses, not mm-hmm. at this stage. But uh, now there's no moratorium. They say, well, there won't necessarily be any, but we accept that there will be some, and then we'll retrain them. I'm sorry, it's far too vague. That was South African Labour analyst Terry Bell speaking to AM Live Sakina Kamwendo. It's 8.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa's richest man, Nigerian Aliko Dangote, or rather at a time when Zimbabwe is battling with increased road accidents and fires destroying millions of dollars worth of property. Operation Florian, a British organization, donated firefighting goods in Harare yesterday. A donation of fire rescue and ambulances services goes in a long way to market Zimbabwe, especially Harare, as one of the best tourism and investment destinations. Simon Muchema reports. Zimbabwe Environment Minister Opam Chinguri on Tuesday blamed the increase of wildfires in the country on trivialization of laws. The minister said that the country is losing millions of dollars worth of property, arable land, wildlife as well as human life each year due to uncontrolled wildfires. Wildfire problems in Zimbabwe have reached alarming proportions and as the country approaches the dry season, Every citizen is aged to play a role in arresting the situation. Wildfires lead to severe environmental degradation and reduced land cover, thus exposing the land to agents of accelerated soil erosion. Muchinguri called for the amendment of the Zimbabwean laws. Our records show that environmental crimes have been trivialized and very few custodial sentences have been given out despite the fact that 72 deaths have been recorded to date. I have started a process towards the amendment of the relevant Forest Act to ensure that mandatory sentences are effected. Currently, our legislation is clear on what is expected of every Zimbabwean. The Forest Act Chapter 19, Section 5 and Statutory Instrument 7 of 2007, Environmental Impact Assessment and Ecosystems Protection Regulation are the legal instruments regulating fire management. And according to law, it is the duty of every land user, owner or designated authority to put in place appropriate fire prevention measures to protect their land. The minister called for the enforcement of environmental law. We need to go further to ensure that there is some enforcement mechanism. And I'm very happy that in my presentation I've alluded to the issue of coming up with a mandatory sentence. If you want also to refer to the issue of domestic violence, the issue of rape, where you have the whole society coming up to say, if livestock uh, thefts uh, call for nine years, it should be the same also for failed fires. So we have started the processes now where we are engaging our lawyers and also the attorney general, also looking at other countries, what they've put in practice to see that we can borrow a leaf 
and uh, we cannot also reinvent the wheel. It is alleged veiled fires in Zimbabwe are on the increase due to financial constraints. Uh, I have only mentioned EMA, which has set aside $200,000 as seed money, $200,000. And uh, I'm looking at also an increment. You are right, 200000 is not enough, especially for EMA, which is the coordinator of this particular program. But we also have Forestry Commission. We also have allied timbers under us. We also have Zinwa. All those agencies are going to also contribute towards this. We also have some NGOs that work with us, other stakeholders, and we are hoping that uh, they will also contribute to this very aggressive program. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's minister clarified issues regarding the ban of trophy hunting in Zimbabwe imposed on the 1st of August and lifted 10 days later on the 10th of August. However, Wange safaris remain a no-go area considering these are the places where illegal hunting that led to the killing of Sisu the lion took place allegedly by American dentist Walter Palmer. It's not in all areas. Mind you, Wange remains the Gwai area. The ban is still effective until we are assured that we have some very strong strategies in place to ensure we will not have illegal hands again. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Our economics update up next with Tabi Solehoko. One of Africa's richest men, Nigeria's Aliko Dangoti, says he's ready to invest in cement and coal mining in Zimbabwe. Dangoti has flown into Zimbabwe on a one-day visit to says a team will arrive in the country as early as next week to explore areas of investment. He met with Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe, the 58-year-old billionaire ex-company Dangoti Group, as investments in cement, sugar and flour manufacturing on the continent. The group opened a cement plant in Zambia last month, Dangoti explains. We will be bringing uh, cement here and taking coal, but we want to set up an integrated cement plant here that, uh, you know, is actually maybe bigger than all the, uh, you know, plants that you have currently. Acelo Migdal South Africa has announced that it will soon begin consultations on the potential closure of its Afanabil Park and Ferenachung Works in Gauteng. The company says the possible closure will affect approximately 400 direct and contract service employees. Last month, the Selomital CEO, Paul O'Flirty, said he was in talks with the government to provide wide-ranging protection against Chinese competition. Official trade statistics put the steel and iron imports from China at about 240,000 tons in the first five months of 2014. In the same period, the 2015 SA's imports from China more than doubled to 489,000 tons. The company says it will engage with stakeholders, including organized labor, and undertake an industrial footprint review of its Ferenachim works. At the same time, the Funderbilt Park in the Valtrangle area works will continue to be unprofitable in the face of the current market conditions. 
South Africa's mining industry unions and the government have signed a broad plan to stem a wave of job losses triggered by falling commodity prices and soaring costs. The document of the blueprint, as seen by Reuters last week, included boosting platinum by promoting the metal as a central bank reserve asset. Mines Minister Nwakura Matlodi says the government plan to negotiate this issue with South Africa's Central Bank and the New Development Bank, which has been launched by the BRICS Group of Emerging Economies. A Dubai-based investor is set to establish a multi-million dollars oil refinery and processing plant in Luansha on the Copper Belt. Kite National Oil Refinery, with the facilitation of the Zambia Development Agency, will set up ultra-modern plant that will be processing used oils, crude oil and hydrocarbons during imported feedstock. Luansha Municipal Council Public Relations Manager Gidon Tole confirmed this in an interview yesterday. Tola says that the local authority had given the oil company five hectares of land for the construction of the plant. A U.S. dollar trades at 13.28 in South Africa, 10.14 in Botswana, 8.59 in Zambia, 6.4 British pound, 8.9 euro. Looking at commodities market, platinum, 10.11 dollars, gold, 1.143 dollars an ounce, brand crude, 5.2 dollars, 63 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. A sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, Lagos State Government has turned down Nigeria Football Federation plans to host Sierra Leone and Ivory Coast Africa Cup of Nations qualifier to be played at the Thunder Tlislam Balogun Stadium on the 6th of September. Sierra Leone are banned from hosting international matches due to the outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus, but a ban on domestic football in Sierra Leone was lifted earlier this month, or rather earlier on August. A shocked Nigerian Football Federation were making frantic efforts on Monday night to relocate the match to uh, to Port Harcourt. The Lyon Stars delegations were expected in Lagos on Monday night and would have lodged at the Eco Hotel in Suits, Victoria Island, while the Elephants are expected to arrive in Lagos on Wednesday. Back home, South Africa will play Senegal in the Nelson Mandela Challenge on the 8th of September at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto, in, um, south of Johannesburg. Bafan Bafana welcomed the Lions of Taranga, who are ranked 5th in Africa, just three days after they travelled to Narcoshot to face Mauritania in an AFCON 2017 qualifier on the 5th of September. Bafan Bafana head coach Ephraim Sheikhs Mashaba. My approach in everything I do is a leadership approach. I don't talk negatively. If I always approach a thing, I approach it with a winning mentality, champion's mind. And when I venture into something, I'm not going to take a chance. I'm going to play such questions. I don't have a shelf to put them in. I tell everybody, whatever I do, I do it 101%. If it didn't work well, it gives us a chance to come back and sit down and say, yep, we tried, but we failed yet. Let us rectify it going forward. 
Well, the two matches coming close to each other, Mashaba says he's not too worried, but happy that his players will be active. I did indicate and uh, remind you about the program that we had when we played the qualifiers. Some of you travelled with us, they know what we went through. But I do believe and I, I, I'm happy if we play games close to one another. The reason being, it keeps the momentum, it doesn't break the momentum. Imagine you play a game this coming weekend, you're going to play another game in another six or seven weeks. It's like starting from scratch. The program that is coming as well, I'm happy about it because it keeps us on our toes all the time. There is no resting time. So in football news, the processes of implementing the resolutions passed by the 68 delegates at the annual general meeting of the Football Kenya Federation held this past weekend has begun in earnest. The delegates resolved to, among other things, prepare for the national elections on the 13th of November as the Federation engages in frantic efforts to be the deadline pronounced by football governing body FIFA back in March. Now, Chairman of the Football Kenya Federation, Sam Nyamwenya, clarifies the deals struck. We have lifted all the suspensions of the officials who were suspended, all of them, from sub-branch to branch to national to clubs. So we have what what we call um, um, amnesty for everybody. So everybody now we start on a clean uh, a clean a clean page, so that everybody is allowed to to, to do his uh, campaign and other things. And finally, in tennis news, Serena Williams and Rafael Nadal lived up to their billing with victories in the first of this year's U.S. Open. Top seed Williams needed just 30 minutes to begin her bid for the first calendar Grand Slam as Vitaly Dinshienko retired at 6-2 to love down. Nadal seeded eighth, saw off 18-year-old Bonka Korik, 6-3, While number one Novik Djokovic went through, but fourth seed Kia Nishigori was beaten. The Japanese player and last year's runner-up lost 6-4-3-6-4-6-7-6-6-4 to Frenchman Benoit Perret. Well, those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Concerns over reported ceasefire violations in South Sudan and speakers of parliament from around the world meet in New York. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Elizabeth Lidija, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277 969 
0614-104-7930 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another on the frequency of 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Baba Mal with the song titled Jam Lili. Yeah, I'm going to 
Tuhnya kini jatuh.